Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So today I'm joined by Jack Wellington, a final year medical student at Cardiff University. Uh, he's been published over 20 times. Uh, he's a co-director of the Abdul Ralph University of Neurosurgery Institute. He's a HLA scholar this year and a big advocate for LGBTQIA2S plus within surgery. So I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, honestly, a massive, massive privilege um, to be invited here today for this podcast. So, um, and honestly, amazing work you're doing with the podcast and um, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, thank you for coming on. So, as I've sort of said, you, you've done, you've got, your list of achievements is very long, but like, tell us a bit uh, about yourself. Yeah, so obviously I'm a current, uh, currently a year five medical student at Cardiff University. Mm-hmm. I really want to pursue a career in neurosurgery, um, but other, other than that, I'd like to attain a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene um, to practice uh, clinically globally. And I want to hopefully aspire to achieve a PhD in surgical sciences, maybe specialise a bit in neuroinfectious diseases. And I want to do an academic foundation post specifically conducting research in neurosurgical practice. Um, I did do a master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I did medical microbiology and I will be doing my elective at the University of Oxford. So basically I want to complete, as I said, an academic foundation post in research, but I really want to endeavour to expand my clinical and surgical acumen and experience uh, throughout um, being a junior doctor and beyond. Um, hopefully after my foundation programme, I hope to do a academic clinical fellowship or maybe a JCF in neurosurgery. And I am, I'm really from a non-medical background, first in the family to go to medical school wow. um, and come from quite a working class background, actually, um, very much brought up in quite um, a difficult area in Cardiff okay. um, and went to, you know, uh, went to state school and very much aspired to get into medical school. Um, my mother was a massive uh, support throughout my life and I couldn't have done it without her. So that's a bit about me. <laughs> oh, no, that's amazing. And, and yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a topic in medicine is that elitism is a lot mm. of sort of private school or, or, you know, your family's in medical school. So how did you sort of overcome those challenges? So, um, so originally I wanted to really, you know, the, my family wanted a doctor in the family. So mm. um, I, from a very young age, my mother was very much like, Jack, you're going to be the first doctor in the family. You're going to try and, you know, get out of, um, of your of my area I brought yeah. up in, um, and I came from quite a um, a humble background, definitely. And again, I couldn't have done it without my mother. So, throughout high school, I really tried to you know attain as much as I could. Got obviously the GCSEs, got the A levels, whatever. But I think medicine's more than just your GCSE grades and A level. It's more about the person you are, and I believe a doctor encompasses three things. So um, they have to be a clinician for the betterment of patient care, definitely, but also give back to the people who educated you as a scholar and then also um, try and, you know, delve into evidence-based medicine, bench to bedside translational medicine and um, pursue research as a way of outputting for the betterment of patient care. That's what you ultimately want to do. You want Mm. to use that research, which you've done, to 
basically translate then into actual, you know, protocols, clinical policy, hopefully guideline policy, and um, and really try and use the research you used to apply that into your everyday practice. Definitely. Okay, and going back to to your mum there, so mm. she goes, Jack, you're going to be the first doctor. To <laughs> is, that, is that not a lot of pressure? On, on it your it was, it was, um, but I mean, she really. I mean, I don't, I, as I said, I don't come from anything medical and my mother was very much like, you know, pursuing a high-end career such as medicine, law, dentistry, something like that. Mm. Um, it really was a way of getting um, sort of out of that background and into, um, I'm, again, I'm very, I'm very uh, thankful. I had an amazing upbringing. It was just my mother wanted better than just staying in the area which really was quite um quite difficult to um, bring up in and um that's what she wanted so i i couldn't have done it without my family supporting my mother and my grandmother especially as well always supporting me yeah. throughout my endeavors and even now my sister has just got a, a place at cardiff to wow. do medicine and my brother will eventually hopefully do graduate medicine as well so we really you know, yeah. it looks like my mum's pushed us to all into medicine, but um, no, she she's she's my rock basically. Oh, that, no, that's amazing to hear. And obviously, she encouraged you. Mm. And some of the stories that you hear from people from disadvantaged backgrounds is that actually um, they can face people like discouraging them. Did you mm. ever find that people were sort of like, oh, you're never going to get into uh, that? Or I think yeah, I think definitely. I mean, for me, primary school was very much like okay, I can't really remember primary school, but um, my. A headmaster was basically I went to a different high school compared to what I should have gone to and he was very much like oh you we've lost someone who potentially could go on to do a high-end career like medicine or law and when I was in high school very much the picture was only people from wealthy backgrounds or you know had money basically got into medicine which I think is wrong yeah. it's it's not just that and I think there's been a massive revolution uh, a change in the way people perceive um, getting into medical school. There's a lot of resources out there now, and especially from people from impoverished backgrounds and difficult backgrounds. And there is a lot of widening participation, which I think is great. My high school particularly didn't really emphasize how to get into medical school, but then I moved to a different college, which did. So I'm very grateful for the education I got. No, definitely. I've... I think I heard a story, it wasn't too long ago, that mm. um, it was like maybe Birmingham Med School, but mm. gave you points if you, one of your parents studied medicine or something mm. like that, which is, when it's you say now, sound, yeah. sounds ridiculous. Definitely. So you talk about widening par um, participation mm. um, and sort of being more inclusive. Um, yourself as an advocate for the LGBTQIA2S+. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of your work with that? Yeah, so basically, I mean, I've found a bit of hardship hardship and discrimination during high school and beyond okay. and it was for me it was a challenge to personally accept that prejudice even in modern day healthcare medicine still exists and we mm -hmm. should all acknowledge it um and especially in surgery i think um there's been massive advances in you know, efforts in conjunction with the royal colleges to address such issues relating to, to diversity and inclusivity but again we need to face the facts like according to stonewall Research shows that LGBT plus people face widespread discrimination in healthcare settings with one in seven um, people who identify as part of the LGBT community, but 14%, avoid seeking healthcare for oh, the fear man. of discrimination from staff. Although it's not specific you know, to the vocation I want to go in, which is surgery, I believe that as healthcare providers, we should adopt a more inclusive outlook, especially in surgery. 
and I personally I found it difficult sometimes on placement um, where I, I fear that people or healthcare providers will personally judge me okay. um, but having said that there is a lot of advocacy at the moment and I want I, I view the future as very much wanting that more inclusive diverse uh, set in medicine and I think it's going in that right direction but there is still prejudice we should acknowledge to this day no definitely and, and I feel like surgery maybe has a reputation for being one of like the last to change it still mm. sort of can be seen a bit of an old boys club mm. is that the sense that you've sort of got have you ever experienced sort of uh, so that? I guess I guess everyone's experiences are completely different mm. but personally I mean I I have definitely feared that because you know I identify as part of the LGBT community okay. um, that it will affect my future um, progression especially in surgical academia mm. I feel that I might you know might not be neg- I might negatively be discriminated against in application process etc because of the way I identify but saying that the Royal Colleges are really doing a lot of work to get rid of that um, uh, discrimination and make it a lot more inclusive environment especially for training um, but again I think we need to face the facts that patients who do identify in this community still according to statistics still get um, you know, ne- negative treatment, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just acknowledging the fact is powerful in its own right. Um, you know, there's actions, everyone, you can do actions and promise actions, but just by acknowledging is in the right direction, in my personal opinion. 100%. And do you do you believe or do you trust that, you know, like the RCS or RCP, the, the change that they've said they want and can make, do you think that will have a genuine effect? I do, I do definitely, um, but it may take time. Uh, you know, all these processes take time to implement um, and all these strategies do, but I think definitely it's in the right direction. Okay, well that's good to hear. You mentioned um, surgical academia there. Mm. I've got to talk about it, 20 publications. I mean, <laughs> you've got to be up there with one of the most published medical students in the country, I, surely. <laughs> I, would not, I would not say that. I mean, again, my personal journey is completely different to, the, mm. um, to everyone. For, uh, you know, everyone's, it's not comparable. You can't compare okay. someone to, you know, uh, to someone who's got more publications, got less publications. It's not, it's, it's, it's hard to distinguish yourself. But I mean, I even pretty much enjoy everything academic. Uh, you know, from critically appraising literature, especially like neurosurgical or infectious disease related, to preparing manuscripts for publications. And I think with this academic profile and building your academic profile, you really do get to see a network, you know, a lot of world-renowned surgeons, world-renowned leaders in healthcare, and go into these conferences and present on an international um, stage and platform. I've allowed myself to keep my CV quite prolific um, but also focus to one end goal of becoming a neurosurgeon one day in the future. And fundamentally, as I said, I believe, you know, a, tri- a doctor encompasses a trial of characteristics, a clinician, a scholar and a scientist. Hence, why my personal professional growth and development has revolved around such traits um, where I try and balance my academic life with still the core clinical competencies to ensure I have the skills for you know managing patients because at the end of the day that's what you're doing as aspiring doctors we want to better patient care and manage to the mm. best of our abilities hence why 
you know, uh, implementing evidence-based medicine, bench-to-bedside translation medicine is paramount in everyday clinical practice. So I'd say a balance between the two is fundamental. Even though, you know, you, you can publish, what, over 20 articles, at the end of the day, you're going to be managing patients. They, yeah. you know, a, a one publication is not going to, you know, you can't denounce your clinical competencies just because of one a said number of publications that is your aim at the end of the day to become a doctor and i think some people forget that and do a pure academic career but at the end of the day the research which people pump out um is also quite um important and um really does translate into everyday care it's important to sort of like keep sight, isn't it, of why you're actually doing definitely, this. Definitely, definitely. But out of the 20, if you had to pick one, you know, what's your sort of favourite or yours, or maybe what, which bit are you most proud of? So the, it's a funny question because there is not one single piece of research I am most proud of, as okay. I'm equally proud of each one of the articles I've co-authored or presented. Mm -hmm. But each opportunity to be part of each paper has been an honour and a privilege, and I just would like to thank those who've allowed me to participate. Yeah. Um, if I had to choose one, mm. I think it would be quite a rather minor piece of work, yeah. um, which was a small history of psychiatry article I published in the British Journal of Psychiatry. Um, it was called Medina's Mixture, Surreal Ecstasy or Perplexing App Reaction. And I'm proud of this because I worked on it with my brother and sister. Oh, wow. And my brother, as I've said, and my sister, my brother's an aspiring medic who's um, currently completing his master's in biochemistry. Mm. And my sister will be joining Cardiff Medical School this year. And I really enjoyed this piece because I got to work with my family and get us all, you know, uh, published and um, really put the Wellington name out there, okay. which is something which um, obviously it forced my family to do so and to help with my brother and sister also, which they've helped a lot with this piece, was just an amazing piece of work. And harp on about it but I really find um, this piece quite interesting because Maduna was basically a neuropathologist who invented a concoction called Maduna's mixture which basically is carbogen which is about 30% oxygen 70% carbon dioxide right. and it was basically administered to induce ab reaction which uh, is basically it's quite it's quite specific but it's a psychoanalytical axiom of catharsis I know that's, that's really weird, yeah, yeah, yeah. but basically it's it was used for convulsive therapy. And even though convulsive therapies, um, you know, have established now from pharmacological to electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, which mm. is widely used for, you know, treatment-resistant depression, etc. Yeah. Um, we should also remember and not forget how instrumental it was in advance in psychiatric practice. Even though I want to do neurosurgery, I think having a range of interests revolving around neurology and psychiatry is also very... Um, it's also quite helpful um, in really understanding the relationship between the brain and the mind. And I think I'm most proud of this because it was a family publication and we got our name on there. Absolutely, so, especially yeah. in like the British Journal of Psychiatry, it's very, you know, it's, it's quite a high impact journal. So we were very proud of that achievement. Definitely, yeah, especially as you talked from, you know, where you come from as well, for mm. all three of you to be involved in that. I know that some of your research and some of the extra things you've done have, have taken you over, over the world. Firstly, like where where's sort of a great place where would you recommend? You know, have you had any sort of great experiences at like conferences? Yeah, or... so I mean, I think a lot of a lot of I've presented both in person and virtually, and I think virtual uh, conference presentations allow for more you know in, international representation because there's not there's not barriers to travel expenses. Mm. You can do it all online, but I think um, 
I think the place I've most enjoyed is probably London because London's the mm. most like the epicenter of most conferences in the UK. Yeah. And I lived in London when I did my masters, and I very much experienced a completely different environment to my own as a Welshman mm. who was brought up uh, in Splot actually in an area oh, Cardiff. Yeah. And I really do enjoy the hustle and bustle of the big city. But big conferences like those provided by ACIP, which is Association of Surgeons and Training, and the one I just recently went to last week, um, which was the Federation of Infectious Society um, conference. I believe they that having you know these big conferences in Gibraltar um, really is a platform to network and meet new people, um, and also experience those places. I mean, I've also been to Aberdeen, Edinburgh. And I just magnificent cities that I'd be honoured presenting that. So I'd say London's probably one of my favourite places to go and visit. And you mentioned that the barriers is something that I personally have been affected by, and I know a few of my my sort of colleagues have been affected by going to conferences, mm. whether it's the travel, the hotel, if it's a night, even the ticket price. It can be extortionate prices. Very much so. Yeah. So how have you obviously you presented a lot of this work? Sort of is it dented your bank account? Or so this is one of the barriers I think to entering a clinical or surgical um, into clinical surgical academia. I think expense, especially from my background. I mean, I I've you know uh, using um, you know part of my like um, you know uh, extra expenses and, and extra um, money I do have. Um, which is very much from like extra work, etc. Right. Having that and spending it on just registration fees is just extortionate. And I think a lot of that for medical students who can't afford it is a barrier in itself. And even then, you know, a train ticket to London's what, 50, 50 quid, mm. something like that, if you've got rail car or something. And just that, it just makes you feel like, wow, how am I supposed to sustain and get these conferences into my belt for, say, a surgical portfolio? It's difficult. And I think, obviously, universities can try and fund as much as they can, but it's difficult. And I think if you do, you know, part-time work or something and and obviously sustain a living and sustain rent, etc., and bills, it's not hard. It's not easy. Um, and that's one barrier I've definitely experienced. Um, but And there's no easy answer of trying to get out of that, unfortunately. You just have to face and it goes back to what we were talking about, about, you know, medicine can be seen as a bit like elitist. Mm. And recently the, the sort of UK FPO for medical students going into foundation training recently announced, well, this will be the first year, that they weren't going to give points for extra degrees, for publications. Mm. That's that's still in place for surgical training. It's still in place for yeah. the academic foundation programme. But one of the reasons that was hypothesised, because... It's a bit elitist if you've got the extra money to spend an extra year integrating, if you've got the extra money to do these presentations, get things published. Did you agree with them getting rid of those points? So this, uh, again, this is quite a controversial thing. I think, um, okay, I'll t- put it this way. Mm. I believe that this argument is twofold. I think some may view research or gaining research as an exclusive community or elitist, but I think I believe both sides of the coin. Every individual's journey into research and medicine is different. Like, I'm, you know, a little Welsh boy who, who pretty much comes from, from Splot with no prior connection to anyone medical or in science. But I have also attained said this, said that. And I initially thought that getting into med- research was such a mean feat and I would not even publish one paper before leaving medical school and entering the world of work. But, I, but the thing is, I asked, delivered and got what I worked for. I believe in... Um, 
I follow this philosophy in life, if you do not ask, you do not get. Mm, so you have to follow it. And it really is your personal journey, nobody else is. And when it comes to the UK FPO, removing these points awarded for publications, extra degrees, mm. etc., I procrastinated why this was their conclusion. There are two sides of the coin. One, which is their rationale, which they pub- uh, put in a letter, was that removing the extra points was that this domain was becoming so large from 70%, like from 30% to 70%, that is may not be a useful differentiator anymore. With secondaries in some programs, compulsory anyway, to so yeah, say Imperial, true. Oxford, etc., compared to the integrated programs taking it around. They also stated the SJT was a stronger predictor than um, educational point measure. So I can see their rationale here. Mm. However, Personally, I think it's quite disheartening for those who opted to pursue another degree and publish articles during medical school, as these are no small endeavours. And the points game is something I do not agree with. There are a plethora of things which deems you a competent doctor, not just grades. So, unfortunately, I cannot answer this question with one clause, but I can see both sides of the argument. I think in, in just in general with the UKPO, the communication was awful. I remember I got except to intercalate and it was only after I accepted it that they then announced yeah. they getting rid of points. So, yeah. But I think, yeah, on the whole, you can, you can see sort of why they did it. And in terms of you, you know, you've obviously got your extra degree, you've got publications, mm-hmm. you know, you, you say if you, that one part of your advice is you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. What other advice do you have for medical students who maybe are feeling a little bit, oh, how do I get all of these? You know, where do I start? So again, this is a very, um, you know, personal thing, but I guess, as I said, my number one phrase to anyone asking for advice on how to get published, how to get conference papers, etc., or how to even get into research is, if you do not ask, you will not get. And some students are intimidated mm. to ask their seniors for help, especially when it comes to publishing. So what I do, I mean, on every placement, SSE, um, or even my elective coming up in February in Oxford, I ask the consultant or reg, or even sometimes junior doctor or trainee on the ward rounds or induction, whether there is any research opportunities, be it audit, case report, to get involved in. This makes you look quite inquisitive and ambitious. And I also abide by LinkedIn. If you do not have a LinkedIn account, please get a LinkedIn account because it's worked wonders for me. It's powerful. And having that network makes the world of a difference. I also think that if you're interested in something, then pursue it. Some projects, say a systematic review, and you're competent in using Prisma, etc., and you know how to do it, then technically you don't really need a supervisor to supervise you. You can supervise yourself or an, or and get a team of people to publish something. Um, and that, you know, even though sometimes having a supervisor name, a consultant name will help with the publication process, if you have an idea and you know how to do it, then do it. What What's stopping you, yeah. really? Um, I would avoid cold emailing. Okay. It's don't batch email loads of people with the same email because people people know each other and all read it. So just email the person who you're interested in doing work with and if they do not respond, then move on. Move on to someone else who also, ha- you have the same interest in, you know, in their in their work. But it's being about, it's all about being proactive, especially with the surgical portfolio. A lot of it you can get done in medical school. Yeah. So be proactive, get stuck in, uh, get stuck into it and just ask. That's my main advice. Just put yourself out there. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Exactly. It's worked for me. Yeah. Definitely. So um, definitely, you know, get LinkedIn. <laughs> that is number one. That get is LinkedIn. very good advice. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, that you're interested in sort of a tropical disease mm. um, and linking that to neuro. So you did what is a very interesting sort of intercalation at the London School of 
hygiene tropical medicine. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the thing is, I to be honest, I didn't think I was going to get the offer. So I was incredibly fortunate to have been offered the place. And doing a master's in medical micro at such a renowned school, it was, you know, it was to be under that expert tutelage and to learn from those who really have impacted the world of public health policy and infectious diseases was quite eye-opening. Mm. Um, although it was academically demanding and vastly different from studying a medical school, I pretty much had to adopt and relearn how to learn in a sense. Yeah. Like delving back into, you know, principles of bacteriology, virology, parasitology, and even mycology, you know, to attain in laboratory skills such as the Kirby Biotest, it was very, very demanding, but it was rewarding. I networked with some incredible individuals and my peers who were on my course were incredibly inspiring. They weren't, there was only a couple of intercalated medics and most of them were um, people who've done science degrees and pursuing PhDs, etc. Wow. So learning from, you know, not just being stuck in the medical community and seeing the other side, you know, in the sciences was also eye-opening. But the one thing which was I struggled with was um, the challenges of converting to online teaching because it was basically COVID happened. Um, but at the same time, I didn't let that you know defeat me because I I was very fortunate to be afforded the opportunity to work um, on the pathogen responsible for African trypanosomiasis, wow. which is also known as African sleeping sickness, and this was done in collaboration with Oxford University and Oxford Brooks. So you know, this really sparked my interest in neuroinfectious diseases. Mm. And this led then onto thinking about the neurosurgical application for said neuroinfections, you know, brain abscesses and more. Um, and it also got me into global neurosurgery because a lot of these things you might, like tropical disease, you might not see in the UK. So networking and, you know, um, meeting new people, I got then further opportunities mm. to publish globally, which, you know, was just an honor really and then the thing people ask me is like why is like you know the switch from infectious diseases i i think it's really important that some people just get honed on one certain research interest yeah. but i think as an academic you should be quite prolific even even with neurosurgery i think you know having an, another interest in say neuroinfection or neuropsychiatry is not a downer it it really does make you more prolific and this then you know, keeping an academic prolific profile profile in the realm of the nervous system is also very much interested me. So that's why I keep my my option, you know, revolved around neurosurgery, but other things as well. I think that's the best way to be. I know a lot of people are so scared of, you know, the point system, mm. they pick something and then that's it and you sort of close your mind off to, to sort of other things. So working my way, you know, through your very impressive CV, but um, so you're the co-director of the Abdul Ralph University of Neurosurgery Research Institute. Uh -huh. What does that involve? You know, what, what are you doing there? So this is, I mean, this opportunity was actually presented to me this year. Um, long story short, but when I, uh, I took an interruption of study after my intercalation because I had surgery okay. and I couldn't, I, I had to take time out purely to focus on my recovery mm -hmm. and get back into the mindset of, you know, pursuing medicine and really um, just focusing on my health and family, etc. Yeah. But during that time, myself and a group of other motivated individuals started the, um, the Walter Reed Dandy Neurosurgical Society Medical Student Club in the UK, where basically the multi Dandy Society is a big neurosurgical society in the USA. Sorry, I say society a lot then. But, um, but basically, uh, Professor Adorayev, he is a globally renowned founding chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at St. Louis University in America. 
and is such an inspiration for aspiring neurosurgeons. Oh, okay. One of the, and one of the friendliest, most generous yeah. individuals I have had the utmost pleasure of working with. Mm. Um, and basically, the professor started the first academic neurosurgical university in the world, which was founded in collaboration with his Institute of Neurosurgery in 2021. And the the primary purpose of the Abdurrahaf University of Neurosurgery is to provide a transformative learning environment for medical students, residents, and neurosurgeons worldwide. And we aim to examine, critically discover, and harness cutting-edge techniques and transmit knowledge with the ultimate goal of finding solutions for our patients to improve quality of life and survival. So we at the Research Institute, as part of the Abdurrahaf University of Neurosurgery, hope to encompass neurosurgeons serving as principal investigators with, um, with uh, AUN, uh, sorry, Abdurrahaf University Neurosurgery residents and medical students, which then form respective teams for each uh, project. And this unique model will basically lend itself to gather multi-center, multi-country, multi-continent <laughs> clinical data, thus allowing the opportunity to answer vexing questions about neurosurgical disease management. And I had the honor of being appointed um, co-director for this initiative alongside someone else. And it's been an amazing feat and we're hoping to do great things with it. Wow, I mean, that sounds, yeah, that sounds incredible. And you did that uh, post-surgery recovery then? I, mean, I did. Me, that's, you know, that's I, yes, so I had surgery back, so I had in, in the January of my interruption study and I did quite a lot, to be honest. I was, I, I didn't want my recovery impeding anything to do with my medical um, prog uh, career progression. Okay. So I really did harness the opportunity to focus, study, critically appraise literature and also publish. And during that time I published quite a bit. So I was very fortunate. I just didn't want having surgery to impede anything. So I used the, utilized the time basically. That's, yeah, that's, that's incredible. So last we talked about um, what you have done, where you're going. Mm -hmm. So you've been accepted onto quite a prestigious program, but to become a HLA scholar. Mm -hmm. um, any sort of plans for that? I know it sort of revolves around having idea and leadership as well. Yeah, so being a scholar is such a privilege and I'm very excited to pursue mm -hmm. uh, my project. Um, but I think the main thing with it is that I get to network with like-minded individuals yeah. and shape my personal professional development into being a future clinical leader. And that's something I'm quite passionate about. And hopefully I want to become such a leader to, and aspire to basically steer the betterment of patient care. That's my ultimate goal. I don't do it for, you know, personal gain. I want to see my research or the projects I pursue or a leadership role to actually impact patient care and impact, um, you know, management of, uh, of, 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 of healthcare. So that's what I hope to achieve during this, uh, during this year as a HLA scholar. But yeah, so you've told us that you're, you know, at the moment, certainly you're going for neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. If you're within the medicine or surgery bubble, neurosurgery is renowned for being, well, quite ridiculously competitive. I, I sort of want to say it is the most competitive. I'm not sure whether the, I think the stats <laughs> are there, but, um, why do you think it is is this way, and does it ever put you off? Uh, to be honest, I, I it does slightly put me off, and I think it puts a lot of people off who want to pursue a career, even even in just surgery mm. in general. Um, and because neurosurgery is a run through, you know, ST one to eight. Um, I think there and this. I actually read there's some publications stating that the number of neurosurgical training posts are likely to reduce in the coming years. And alongside the really strict shortlisting criteria, this makes the competition ratios skyrocket and become competitive. Okay. And in, com 
in the context of the core surgical training shortlisting, it's transparent that a good surgical portfolio displaying leadership and scholarly skills alongside, you know, academic achievements, publications, whatever, yeah. is what will distinguish yourself from others who are applying. So my advice um, as, a, as a mere <laughs> uh, medical student is to start early and make the most out of medical school. It is, mm-hmm. it is competitive, but if you do put the work in and you know how the shortlisting works, it really does help. Um, and... I, I just think because of the number of neurosurgical training posts, I think that's why it's quite competitive. I'm sure sort of looking through that um, you'll be an extremely competitive candidate for that. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> and why, and why, why was it neurosurgery as well? You know, is there anything in particular about neurosurgery that you... So, drawn you there? well, the other thing is, like, I'm very much interested in neuroinfectious diseases and, you know, the global application of neurosurgery. And I wanted to have a foundation in infectious diseases specifically focusing on neuroinfection to then translate into a surgical career with neurosurgery in particular. I'm very much interested in um, a couple of areas such as um, neurosurgery for mental disorder. I think okay. it's it's quite a niche area, but and there's only a couple of centers which actually do you know these, um, these surgeries. Um, but I think it's, I think a lot of people don't really think that's like um, the link between neuro and psychiatry. And I think I have an interest in both the brain and the mind and it should mm. should be the same entity. It shouldn't be two separate distinct things. If you're treating someone for say a neurosurgical problem, then um, also think about, you know, the psychological sequelae, also think about how, psych- uh, how this person may be affected psychologically. So having that interest in both the brain and the mind and also the bugs which cause yeah. problems of the mind and the brain is is what I'm passionate about. And although it's very, very niche, I just, I'm very much interested in those couple of topics. Hence why neurosurgery is why I think it's that perfect blend of mm. academic, um, surgical, clinical, and it's just the reason why I want to pursue it. Well, it's been fantastic to talk to you and, and a question that we sort of like to end on mm-hmm. is have you got, obviously not graduated yet, but maybe from placement or your intercalation, but an interesting story, uh, you know, from that can be from a patient or, or else? So I think, so for me, I think being in medical school has really been an eye-opener to really, you know, engage and learn from, learn from a lot of different patients and uh, individuals about like life stories and um, you have that privilege in medicine where you get to listen to people's, you know, quite not intrusive, but listen to people's stories and backgrounds. It's having that insight into someone's background is just a privilege in itself. And I think medicine offers that. But an interesting story, I'd say when I was intercalating, um, we had talks um, very much from academics about COVID-19. And, you know, saying that, oh, it'll be, you know, settled and it'll be fine. And lo and behold, look what happened. So I think having that perspective on healthcare policy and um, on what reality is, is two different things. And I think that's very much what my integration showed me, that even though you have all these policies in place, whatever, it doesn't go to plan. 
and I think we've, we can learn a lot from the dawn of the COVID era. I think we can learn a lot about changing from online, uh, sorry, changing from in-person to online teaching, you know, this, just even how to do virtual consultations, which I think Cardiff have done quite well in teaching mm-hmm. us that. Um, I, I'd say that was very much an eye-opener when I integrated. And, um, and yeah, seeing all the amazing tropical diseases, which, um, which are really, you know, you, you don't see in the UK. That was eye-opening. And, um, especially in parasitology, that was very eye-opening. Seeing things like, you know, a kind of cocosis and tenia solium, tapeworm. It was very, very interesting. So if anybody's interested in bugs, that's the place to go. Yeah, <laughs> that was very much my interest in stuff. I can imagine. I hope those lectures are recorded as well. The ones <laughs> the academics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, but no, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. You know, you've got, it's amazing what you've done and thank you as well for the advice that you've given. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll be following not only yourself, but your brother and your sister as well. Definitely. I, definitely. Um, I'm so proud of my family and I do wish them all the best. Great, well thank you very much. No, it's been an honour. Thank you very much for inviting me here today.